<laughs> Bit of a rush this morning. And that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> uh, welcome, church. Welcome those of you who are joining us online. If, uh, if this is your first time with us or your first time in a long time, uh, you have picked, I, I think, one of the most important Sundays that we've had all year. We're starting this morning, uh, I think, a series that you will find may have more practical impact and relevance in your life uh, than any teaching we've heard at all this year. Uh, I want to st- sort of set the stage for, for what we're going to be involved with this month by taking you on a quick historical journey stopping off at three distinctive dates that bring us to this place we are today, which is a culture that is immersed in a almost pathological fascination with a reckless speed of living. We're studying this book together called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I know that sounds like really aggressive language, but there is a certain amount of ruthlessness that is going to be necessary to confront this reality in our lives. And unapologetically, we're going to borrow heavily from this book, and that's okay because John Mark Comer, the author, is borrowing heavily from a much greater teacher, from Jesus himself. But let's go on that little historical journey. What time is it? Have you got the time, anyone? Oh, everybody did this. Do you know that for... The vast majority of human history, we didn't do that. Fast forward to the year 1370. Human beings have been on the planet for for thousands of years already, but 1370 is a turning point in the history of the world. It was in that year, for the very first time, a mechanical clock was erected in a public square in Cologne, Germany. Before that time... Uh, any sense of, of the rhythms of your day, of time, was natural, linked to the rotation of the earth and to the seasons. Uh, you went to bed when the moon rose. You woke up when the sun rose. Days were long and they were busy during the summer and they were short and a little bit slower during the winter. But there was a cadence to life and to the year. And it was dominated by by natural rhythms and, and free of that that relentless sense of haste that is an inevitable part of our world. The clock changed all of that. It created artificial time. And with it, that long slog of nine to five, seven days a week, all year long. We stopped listening to our bodies. And then we started rising when those alarms blared and jolted us awake. Whether our bodies were done resting or not, time to get up. We became more efficient, yes. But somewhere along the line, we have this sneaking suspicion that we became maybe just a little bit less human. 1370. Let's go forward a few more centuries. 1879, Thomas Edison, famous inventor of all the inventions he's known for. His greatest may well be the light bulb. 1879. From that moment onward, it's possible now for human beings to stay up long past sunset. And of course, you could have done it with candles, but people generally didn't. So brace yourself for this next stat. Before Edison, the average person slept 11 to 12 hours a night. 
And we read these biographies of, of great men and women from history. They get up at four o'clock in the morning, St. Teresa of Avila and John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon. And you think, wow, they, they must be so much more serious about their faith, about Jesus than I am. And maybe that's true. I mean, it probably is true. But realize they went to bed at seven o'clock. They've already been asleep for nine hours. What else are they going to do? They got up and they prayed. About a century ago, things really started to change, and our relationship with time began to change again. It's the, it's the beginning of the industrial, the technological revolution, and all of these, they were called labor-saving devices. Labor-saving devices were meant to save us time, and they did. So where did all the time go that we saved? The answer was we spent it on other things. The 1960s, futurists from all over the world were fascinated with the pace of change. One famous Senate subcommittee, the year is 1967. How many of you were alive in 67? <laughs> My hand is down. No, 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 no. <laughs> 1967, subcommittee report says that by 1985, the average person would be working 22 hours a week for no more than 27 weeks a year. And everybody thought the main problem in the future would be how to spend all this extra leisure time. Huh? And here's the last date. It reaches a climax. The year is now 2007. When the history books are written, this is going to go on record as a watershed moment, I suspect equivalent to the, to the invention of the Gutenberg printing press, which, as you know, changed everything. Protestant Revolution, the great enlightenment that transformed the world. 2007. Anybody know what happened? Little drum roll. The iPhone. Exactly. Steve Jobs and Apple released the iPhone into the wild. And here we are now, almost 20 years later, and a recent study said that the average smartphone user now interacts with their phone, touches it, 2,617 times a day, every day. For millennials, you folk, the number is at least twice that. Yeah. There's a... There's a Silicon Valley researcher. His name is Tristan Harris. He's doing some fascinating work right now. And he, he points out, this is an interesting analogy, that slot machines, just like the little quarter machines or the dollar machines, you know what I'm talking about? You shouldn't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. He points out that slot machines make more money than the film industry and the sporting industry combined. Even though they only take a few quarters or, or dollar bills at a time. Why? Because the slot machine is addictive. And those small amounts of money, they feel maybe inconsequential at the moment. It's just a quarter. It's just a quarter. It's just a quarter. But over time, it adds up. The same way, our time-saving devices, our tech, is addictive. They're just small moments, a text here, a scroll through Instagram there, maybe a little bit of browsing around social media, but it adds up, and it adds up to an extraordinary amount of time. 
And it does something else. Cue another terrifying trend. As all this is happening, the attention span of the average human being is dropping with each passing year. In 2000, when they studied it, just before the the digital revolution really gains force in the world, the average attention span of an adult male living in the West, 12 seconds. Not exactly a lot of room for margin there. But when they studied it just recently, they found that on average it has dropped now to eight seconds. Now, to give you a benchmark, benchmark of comparison, biologists say a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. We are losing to goldfish. <laughs> So this little historical journey, here we are, uh, after a millennia, millennia, like centuries of a very gradual, slow acceleration, things started picking up about a century ago. And the sheer velocity of culture has now reached this kind of feverish pitch. And the question I want us to ask, starting this morning throughout the whole month, the question we're going to ask is, what has all of this, this relentless hurry this distraction, this addiction, this pace of life, what is it doing to our souls? The title of this book and the title of our series, The the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and again, I know it's an aggressive-sounding title, but it it has its origins just in in a little conversation between a a mentor and a mentee. The, The mentor is a man named Dallas Willard, a philosopher working at the University of California, but best known as a teacher of the ways of Jesus. And he was having a conversation with a pastor that he was mentoring at the time. Pastor says, yeah, Dallas, what is it that you think I need to do in order to become the man I want to be and the man that God is calling me to be? It's a good question. Right? And Willard pauses for a moment. He was famous for these long pauses. And then when he speaks what he said, nobody would have predicted. He says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Okay, pastor says, what else? (laughs) Again, long pause. There is nothing else. Hurry, Willard said, is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Turns out he was on to something. That hurry may be at the root of so many of the problems that have become toxic in our world. I bet very few of us would suspect that that was the case. You know, what are the great problems of our world? Is it liberalism or conservatism? Is it it the prosperity gospel? Is it the redefinition of sexuality and gender or, or the rise of internet pornography or or, or the millions of questions that people have about violence in the world or in the Bible or the fall of celebrity pastors, whatever it is, few of us would have said that hurry is at the foundation of so many of the problems in our world. But read the Bible. One of the things that you'll notice is that Satan rarely shows up. In fact, he never shows up in the kind of caricature that we imagine as a demon with a pitchfork and horns and a goatee speaking in a raspy voice. 
Today, you are far more likely to run into, into heaven's great adversary in the form maybe of an alert that just keeps popping up on your phone every time you're in prayer or trying to read your Bible, or in a multi-day Netflix binge, or, or on this full-on dopamine addiction that some of us have to Instagram. Another Saturday at the office, another soccer game on Sunday, commitment after commitment after commitment, all happening at the speed of light. Corey Tenboom once said, you know, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's truth in that because, you know, sin and busyness, they have the exact same effect. They cut you off from a connection with God and other people and your own soul. So Carl Jung, famous psychologist, he, he put it this way, hurry is not of the devil, he said, hurry is the devil. People are just too busy to lead emotionally healthy, spiritually rich, vibrant lives. Think about the, the opening conversations we have so frequently and almost flippantly with people. How are you? Good. Busy. Good. Do you hear that? Do you say that? How are you? Okay, been busy, been busy. Uh, and that's like the calling card for our generation. It, it seems to affect people of all different genders, nationalities, life stages. College students are busy. Young parents are busy. Empty nesters living on the golf course, you're busy. CEOs are busy. Baristas are busy. Part-time nannies are busy. Canadians, Kiwis, Germans, we're all busy. Now, granted, there is a healthy kind of activity in life filled with things that matter, not wasted on, on just so much trivia. By that definition, Jesus himself was busy. He lived a full, purposeful life. But you never got the sense that it was harried and rushed, that he didn't have time to stop and enjoy the beauty of God's world and spend time with God's people. The problem is not that you have a lot to do. The problem is sometimes that you have so much to do that the only way to keep up with the quota is to hurry constantly. And we live in this, in this consistent, accelerated state. We're all accelerator, no brakes. And that hyperspeed, it's, it, it's not... Well, can we say that it, 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 it's not... It's anti-Christian. I mean, let's just be honest. Think about what is the highest value in the economy of, uh, of the kingdom of God? Jesus was really clear about it. What is it that matters most? Easy, Jesus said. Love. What is the greatest teaching in all of the Torah, of all the commandments, the greatest revelation about God? Well, it's simply this. That God loves you, and in response, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And this too, love other people. Love your neighbors. But here's the thing. Love is painfully time-consuming. You know that, right? Parents know that. Couples know that. Long-term friends know that. Hurry and love are incompatible. So John Mark Comer, he, he made a statement early on in the book, and as soon as I read it, it just it quickened me. I thought, boy, that sounds autobiographical about me. This is what he said. All of my worst moments, all my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, all of my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry. 
late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list, trying to cram too much into my day, and I ooze anger and tension and a critical spirit, and all of these are the antitheses to love. We were at a beautiful wedding ceremony yesterday for a couple of members of our church, Harold and Cheryl, who we said could sleep in. They get a get-out-of-church car card for this morning. But, and we read, as we often do at weddings, the beautiful chapter in, in 1 Corinthians 13, the so-called love chapter. Describes what love is. Do you remember how it starts? What is the very first description that the Bible uses when it's, when it's giving this kind of ultimate uh, accounting of what love looks like? Love is what? Patient. Patient. It's not hurried. It's not rushed. There is a reason why we talk about walking with God, not sprinting all the time. In our culture, the word slow is seen as, as pejorative. It, it's negative. When somebody has a low IQ, we used to call them slow. We don't anymore, thank goodness. When the service at a restaurant is lousy, why is it? It's because it's slow. Case in point, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, I looked it up, defines the word slow this way. Mentally dull, stupid, time for a re-edit of Webster's Dictionary. Mentally dull, stupid, naturally inert or sluggish, lacking in readiness, promptness, or willingness. But the message is clear. Slow is bad. Fast is good. But here, as in so many places, Jesus takes the values of the world and inverts them. We call it the upside-down kingdom. That in the economy of the kingdom, slowing down, taking time to enjoy what God has given, that this is true riches. So just to, just to restate that, that, that whole little summary, we're just setting the table here. Love, joy, peace. These things that are at the heart of all that Jesus is trying to grow in the soil of our lives, they are incompatible with living in a constant state of hurry. Pathological busyness. Here's a key point. Pathological busyness, distraction, restlessness. These are major roadblocks in our spiritual lives. Now I realize that there's, there's a time for, for hurry. When your wife goes into labor, your water breaks, you, you better be in a hurry. When, when your toddler runs out into the street, you better be in a hurry. But let's be honest, the moments that require that kind of accelerated life are sometimes few and far between. And we live all of our moments too often at that same reckless pace. The pathological busyness that we live with as a default setting, we assume that it's normal, but it's not, it's... It's pathological. Listen to uh, another favorite writer of ours, John Ortberg. He says that for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted, so rushed and preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. And we'll just skim along the surface of our lives instead of actually living them. I can't help but wonder if we were to eavesdrop on that conversation that Jesus had with Mary and Martha. And we'll, we'll get into that one a little later in the series. But remember, Jesus looks at Martha, who was feeling rushed and busy and running around, and he just says, Martha, Martha, 
you are worried, you're upset about many things. Slow down. Few things are really needed. Indeed, only one. And he went on to say, come sit at my feet. Let's just spend time together. Psychologists, mental health professionals, they're talking now about an epidemic in our world, and they've given it a name. It's called hurry sickness, as in it's a disease. A couple of writers, Rosemary Sword, Philip Zimbardo, they wrote a book called The Time Cure, and they they kind of offered these tongue-in-cheek indicators that, that you may have fallen victim to this particular sickness. Do you find yourself, if you're in line for a checkout, sort of looking at all the other lines and trying to do the math? Fewer carts in that one, but more items. That cashier is slow. Even though the line is is short, it's slow. And you're trying to do the math. Do you find yourself, as you're pulling up to a red light at the intersection, looking at all the other lanes, finding one of the fewest cars, and I'm going to merge into that one? Do you find yourself multitasking to the point where you begin to forget one or more of the tasks that you're trying to do, and you have to start all over again? If, if we were to do this a little bit deeper, and I think we should, uh, there is a kind of internal audit uh, that, that is a good launching off point for the conversation. I'd like to guide you through it. If you have a few minutes. Do you have a few minutes? You're not in a hurry, are you? Okay. Okay, good. John Mark Comer offers these 10 indicators, kind of like 10 symptoms of hurry sickness. And I'm going to have you just do a little bit of mental math. If that's you, you give yourself a tick. And we're going to count at the end. How many ticks did you get? One, two, ten. Okay. Here, here's the first one. Indicators of hurry sickness. Irritability. Irritability. You find yourself getting mad, frustrated, just annoyed by life. Little things that used to just bounce right off you. Normal things bother you. And the people that you know and that know you best, I'm not talking about arms, legs, acquaintances, but your family, your, your spouse, your kids, your, your neighbors, those who are closest to you, they're on eggshells around you all the time, tiptoeing like you're going to explode. Irritability. Is that you? Give yourself a tick. How about this one? Number two, hypersensitivity. All it takes is just some minor little comment to hurt your feelings. A, a, a grumpy email, and it just it sets you off. A, a little unexpected turn of events, and it throws you into an emotional funk all day. Minor things become major crises in your life. And depending on your personality type, this may show up as anger or nitpickiness or anxiety or depression or, or just tiredness. Hypersensitivity. Is that you? Tick. Here's a third one. Restlessness. Restlessness. When you actually do try and slow down and rest, you can't. You just can't relax. You've given Sabbath a try and you hate it. I can't do nothing. You've tried reading scripture, spending time in prayer. You find scripture boring. Prayer is ineffective. You have quiet time with God, but you can't focus your mind. Eight seconds, goldfish are beating you. You you go to bed. You go to bed early even, but you just toss and turn. Anxious thoughts, you can't fall asleep. You watch TV, but simultaneously, you're checking your email, you're folding your laundry, you're multitasking, then you forgot where you started. Restlessness, is that you? 
Wow. How are we doing? <laughs> Seven more. Fourth indicator of hurry sickness, workaholism, well, of course, right? Or, or just nonstop activity. You don't know when to stop. Or worse, you can't stop. Another hour, another day, another week. Your drugs of choice, accomplishment, accumulation. It, it could show up as kind of careerism or obsessive house cleaning, cleaning or errand running. But the result is the same. It, it's a kind of sunset fatigue where by the end of the day, there is nothing left to give. Nothing left for your kids, for your spouse, for the work of God for your loved ones, for yourself. Workaholism. Here's a fifth indicator. Emotional numbness. Emotional numbness. You just, you don't have the capacity anymore to feel another person's pain. Empathy, it's beyond you. In fact, it runs even deeper you don't have the ability to feel your own emotions. You're numb. And you live in this constant fugue state. Emotional numbness. Here's a sixth indicator. Your priorities are all out of order. They're your priorities, but you don't follow them. You feel disconnected from your own life as you're living it. This is not who I am. This is not how I imagined my life going. This is not the career I had in mind. You're always getting sucked into the tyranny of the next urgent thing. Not the important things that you wanted to place in the center of your life, but the urgent things. So your life is always reacting, reacting, reacting. Never proactive. You're busier than you've ever been, but you feel like you never have time for the things that matter to you the most. And so months go by, years, God forbid, even decades. And you realize you never got around to doing the things that were most important to you in your life. Your priorities are all out of order. Here's the seventh. Boy, this is going to be telling for us. Lack of care for your own body. We don't talk about this a lot in the church. We should talk more about it. You don't have time for the basics. Eight hours of sleep at night, daily exercise, healthy home-cooked food, minimal use of stimulants, you know what I mean, and margin. Margin is that space in between how much capacity you have and how much you've been given to do. And often, we have it in verse. We have more that we've been given to do than we have capacity. Margin is the space between what you've got and what you need to do. How many of you feel like there's no margin in your life? And as a result, your body bears the weight of it. You gain weight or you lose it dramatically. You get sick multiple times a year. You wake up in the morning as tired as you went to bed the night before. You don't sleep well and you live off of the four horsemen of the industrialized food apocalypse. Caffeine, sugar, processed carbs, and alcohol. Lack of care for your body. Tick. <laughs> Number eight. How are you doing? Has anybody got one already? Okay. All right. 
Number eight, escapist behaviors. You're too tired to do what's actually life-giving for your own soul. And we each turn to our own distractions of choice to escape. Overeating, over-drinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the net, looking at internet porn, whatever it is, whatever your preferred cultural narcotic may be. I'm not saying that, that these things are always bad. A little bit of escape every once in a while is healthy, even good. But when they become endemic, chronic, when they suck all of your time and energy into them, when you abuse them to the place where they have caused you to exit reality completely, they eat you alive. Those who know best what it, what it means to be swallowed up in escapist behaviors are the first ones who are willing to say, my life as I'm trying to live it is beyond my control. It is the foundational statement of every one of the anonymous movements. Alcoholics, narcotics, sex addicts, anonymous. Our life, we know it, has become unmanageable. Get to what they say next in a few minutes. (laughs) Number nine, slippage of spiritual disciplines. We're going to come back to this over the next month. But when you get over busy... The things that are truly life-giving to your own soul are the first to go instead of the first thing that you go to. And that's tragic. Things like, like a little bit of breathing time, space, quiet time with God in the morning, enjoying the thrill of, of God's word and prayer and Sabbath and worship and a meal together and community and so on. When we get over busy, we get overtired. And when we're overtired, we just don't have the energy to do the things we need most. So instead of life with God, we settle for life with a Netflix subscription and a cheap glass of red wine. It's a poor substitute. Slippage of spiritual disciplines. And here's the last one. Isolation. Isolation. You feel disconnected from God, from other people, from your own soul. And on those rare times when you actually stop to pray, and by pray I don't mean the laundry list of God, can you do this for me? I I mean just sitting with God in the beauty and the quiet of the world that he's made. When you try and do that, you are so stressed and distracted that your mind can't settle long enough to enjoy that moment. Same thing happens with your friends. When you're with them, you're on your phone, you're a million miles away in your mind, you're running through your to-do list. Even when you're alone, you come face to face with that, that aching void in your own life. And immediately you run back to the familiar groove of busyness and activity. Hurry is killing us. It kills relationships. Why? Because love takes time. And hurry doesn't have it. It kills joy and gratitude and appreciation. People who are always in a rush don't have time to enjoy the goodness that God brings into the moment. And so many people were missing out on the sense of God's faithful presence, His goodness, His beauty in the moment. Because we sit around and we're sucked into whatever it is that we use to avoid the the aching emptiness of our own lives. Key point. 
what you give attention to in your life, and that's what we're talking about. What is it consumes your time? What you give attention to in your life, that's the person you'll become. We want to think it's a lot of other things. I have goals, I have plans, I, you know, I have my life road mapped out. Rubbish. It's what you give your attention to that will determine the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the gateway to the soul, and what you fill your mind with and your time with will shape your character in your soul. Because in the end, we are no more than just the sum of all the things that we gave attention to in our lives. Again, I love how how John Ortberg put it. He said, hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. And all too often, hurry is a sign of something else, something deeper. You remember those haunting words of Jesus? What good does it do for someone to gain the whole world, Jesus said, and lose their own soul? You feel that? You feel like you've lost a grip on your soul, or at least a part of it? You want to get it back? This is the month for you. And we're not going to fix it in a month. But, but we're hoping that, that this can be a bit of a rallying cry and a turning point, a new beginning in, in the lives of God's people here at MCBC. So we're going to talk a little bit about, about the answer. Because you can't go away now or you just feel awful. I feel worse than when I came to church. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's begin to address the answer. And then we're going to unpack it over, over the next four weeks. There's the problem. You know, we don't have enough time. But here's the thing, and listen carefully to this. The solution is not more time. It's not more time. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the opening book in the library of Scripture. This is the defining statement on what it means to be a human being. It says some core things about who we are. The first thing it says about us, Genesis 1, verse 27. You have that in front of you? Genesis 1, verse 27 says, we were made in the image of God. How good is that? We're made in the image of God. Then flip ahead to chapter 2 and verse 7. Here's the other thing it says about us. Genesis 2, 7 says, we were made from the dust. (laughs) Image and dust. That's us. Image and dust. To be made in the image of God means that we are filled with all of this potential. We have... Just something, the, uh, a spark of, of who God is and what he's like written into our spiritual DNA. We were created to image, to reflect all that God is, his rule and love and his creative force in the world. That's in us. But that's only half the story. We're also made from dirt, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We are the original biodegradable containers. I love that line from this book. Which means we're born with limitations. We're not God. We have the image of God, but we're not immortal. We're finite. Image and dust. We have potential and we have limits. And one of the key tasks of of apprenticeship to Jesus, of following Jesus, is learning to live both our potential and within our limits. So let me show you what the, what the way of Jesus has to say about this epidemic of hurry. To start with, the favorite title in the Gospels given to Jesus, do you know what it is? Yeah. 
rabbi. Rabbi, which is Hebrew word, just means teacher. Of course, we know he's so much more than that. Messiah, Savior, the embodiment of God himself, God on earth in flesh. But, but he was known most frequently among his, his own generation as a rabbi, a teacher. And like every rabbi of his generation, Jesus had two things. The first thing he had was a yoke. You heard the scripture? Take my yoke upon you. Not a literal yoke. I mean, he's, a, he's a teacher. But uh, this is a place that, that maybe we need to stop and camp out a little bit because the image itself is not familiar to us. So I brought it with me this morning. I thought we could go through it here. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. The source of of life. I mean, with, within the shell beats the living heart of new creation. Jesus says, my life, take it upon you. New life within you. I've heard sermons preached on this. Beautiful, eloquent, and absolutely wrong. That is not the image. That is not a yoke. I mean, that's a yoke, but that's not the yoke Jesus is talking about. What's a yoke? Can we see a picture of a yoke? How many of you have seen a yoke before? Few? You know, again, we're not agreeing. That's a yoke. And to give you a sense of size, that probably weighs about 150 pounds. It is probably about eight feet across, at least. Uh, let me show you what it looks like as it's put to use. This is a yoke. Next slide. Now wrapped around the necks of two oxen. This is how it's used. You double the strength available to you, and this is the way that you take a young oxen and you train it to do the work of plowing, the work of the fields. The mature, wise one tethered to the young learning apprentice. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. Yoke is a common idiom, right? It's an idiom of work. And as it was used among the rabbis, it was also used as kind of an idiom for for this is our understanding of what God's word says for us. A way to shoulder the the burdens of life, marriage, divorce, prayer, finance, conflict, government, all of it. How do you manage it? I mean, it's an odd image for those of us who don't live or work on farms. But you can imagine what it would be like to be tethered to Jesus. Wise, mature, filled with uh, with the, the, the presence, the power of God, walking shoulder to shoulder, side by side, through life. All rabbis had a yoke. What was distinctive about Jesus was that he said, my yoke is what? Easy. Easy. Let's come back to that in just a minute. That's the first thing. The, the second thing all rabbis had, they had apprentices. In Hebrew, the word is the talmudim. And most often, when you see it translated, it's the word disciple. And that's, that's a good word, fine word. We use it frequently. Maybe a better word, though, is the word apprentice. To be one of Jesus' Talmudim means to be an apprentice of Jesus, yoked to him. And to put it simply, it means to organize your life around three basic goals. These are the goals of the apprentice. Be with Jesus. Be like Jesus. And do what Jesus might do 
if he were you in your situation. The whole point of apprenticeship was to model your life after Jesus. And the tantalizing invitation that Jesus gives is that when you do that, you begin to recover your own soul. That's what he means when he says that the burden is easy, that the warped parts of your life come back into shape and you begin to experience healing in the innermost part of your being. Jesus called it abundant life, life to the full. He didn't mean necessarily full bank account. He meant fullness of soul. And it's what the New Testament writers called salvation. Now keep this in mind. The word that, uh, that the Bible uses when, when you read salvation, the word soterra, is the same word that you read when the Bible talks about healing. So when Jesus finds somebody and heals them, same word as when we say Jesus has saved us. Don't miss the message. Salvation is about healing. Eternal healing, absolutely. Healing from sin, absolutely. But also healing in the day-to-day arduous rhythms of life. Even our English word, salvation, has its origins in the Latin word salve. You know what salve is? That medicated ointment. Do you remember Rundle's salve? Yeah? It, that ointment that you put on, on burned skin to, to save and to heal. They're the same idea. And so Jesus is at work in the world trying to address this, this disease, this sickness in humanity, and he's offering healing. How? through apprenticeship to him. So everywhere he went, he's offering the same invitation. And usually it sounds something like this. Come, follow me. Come, be with me. Come, be my apprentice. But my favorite form of the invitation is the one that comes in Matthew 11. Let's read it together. Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I I hope you're going to live with that scripture for the next month, actually for the rest of your life. I want you to hear it again. This time it's going to stick in your ears in, in words that are less familiar. Is there a paraphrase by a man named Eugene Peterson? Again, Matthew 11. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to live and take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. How good is that line? Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The invitation of Jesus, take up my yoke. Travel through life with me at your side, and together we'll shoulder the weight of life with greater ease. Now, this is the point in writing some notes for the sermon where I I had to sort of stop and do a a gut-level check and think, you know what? I mean, let's just call out the elephant in the room. I'm a follower of Jesus, or at least I, I aspire to be. Many of you are, and you're at different stages of the journey. But honestly, I'm tired. And there are days when I am just flat out worn out. 
And there have been seasons when I live with this low-grade fatigue that just never seems to go away. And sometimes, I don't know the pastors can say this, but sometimes I'm even a little bit burned out on church. Do you ever get burned out on church? Yeah. And I wonder, what gives? What, what am I doing wrong? Am I missing something? The answer is yes, uh, I am. Maybe, maybe you are. Here's the key. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We read these beautiful accounts of Jesus and his joy and that unassailable peace, that that presence, never with anxiety, that relaxed manner, how in the moment he was and with people he was. And we think, I want that. I want that in my life. We hear the invitation, abundant life, life to the full, and we think, sign me up. We hear about a yoke, and it's easy, and soul-deep rest, and gosh, heck yeah, I need that. But we're not willing to adopt his lifestyle. This, by the way, is the central conviction of John Mark Comer's book, and of the series. Uh, Let me just read to you, Two sentences. Comer says that the Western church, that's us, the Western church has lost sight of the fact that the way of Jesus is just that, a way, a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas, those things we call theology, or a list of do's and don'ts, what we call ethics. I mean, it is that, Comer says, But it's so much more. It's a way of life based on that of Jesus himself. It's a lifestyle. Your life is a byproduct of your lifestyle. If you want that abundant life Jesus talked about, that kind of nonstop, constant enjoyment of God's presence in God's world, it's not enough just to adopt the theology or the ethics, you need the lifestyle. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at with that that kind of peculiar image of the yoke. A a yoke is for living. A yoke is for, for working. It's bizarre language, and particularly if the goal is to find rest for your souls. Can you imagine putting that on your back? If the goal is rest, listen to what uh, New Testament scholar Dale Bruner says about that passage in Matthew 11. He says, a yoke is an instrument of work. So when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what many tired workers think they need the least. What they need is a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. Bruner goes on, though, and he says, but Jesus realizes that the most restful gift that he can give those who are tired is a new way to God that you are doing something new and fresh and wonderful. Give us the courage, God, to, to step out in faith and try some new things, adopt some new practices, let go of the things that have been dragging us down and eating us up inside. God, would you have your way in us, in our lives, in our families, in our church? We, we give you this pivotal moment. Come into our lives fully, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.